First Peter chapter 5. We've had 41 sermons making our way through these five chapters, and today we'll finish up the last five verses by His gracious will. The first epistle of Peter. I want to read to you the last five verses, beginning at verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us rejoice in everything before us. The Lord brings us to His Word, and He has inspired every word of it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Luke 4, 4 but only in a King James Bible. Because every word of God is removed from every other version of Luke 4.4, but the King James. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5, every word of God is pure. And so we want to delight in every word. And you can see the first word is a word that I commonly call an inspired disjunctive because it's the word but that's drawing a contrast and we should pay attention to it. I love the Word of God, and I want you to love it with me. The fact that the word Babylon is in this passage is just so exciting. That Peter was an apostle of a church in Babylon 1,800 miles from Rome. When they want us to believe that he was the first pope and bishop of the church of Rome. Paul was the apostle that took care of the Romans. Not Peter. Just all kinds of good things here. As to why Silvanus is mentioned. And who is Marcus? Just good things. Let's just enjoy every word of it. But of course, what we should enjoy the most are three G words and a C word. We should enjoy the God of all grace who has called us to eternal glory. There's three G words and He's done it by Christ Jesus, the C word, our Savior and our Captain. And we should just rejoice together. He's called us out of the world, having chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would delight ourselves in these things as His dear children. But, verse 10 of 1 Peter 5 begins with the word but. It's an inspired disjunctive. There's coordinating conjunctions like and and for that take two clauses and tie them together and continue a line of reasoning. And then there is but that draws a contrast between those clauses that are coming up as one is different than the other. Remember, if you've read the Proverbs 
and sought to read them with understanding, you have run into clauses being compared many times before this. And sometimes it's and, so that you're getting a redoubling of the lesson of the first clause, or it's a but, where you're getting a contrast. And there's a lot of contrasting clauses in the Proverbs. But, there's a contrast to be clearly seen by the use of this opening word. In opposition to what has been listed, look at verse 7 of chapter 5. Cares. Cares are the things that bother us. They are the troubles that weigh us down. So there's cares in verse 7. There is an adversary, the devil, in verse 8. And there are afflictions in verse 9. And so as the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, progresses through those negative things of cares, adversary, and afflictions of verses 7, 8, and 9, he then comes to 10 and says, But, yes, you're going to have cares in this world. But as Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. And we, we want to we feast on that fact by the God of all grace who is taking care of us and He has more than enough grace to get us to eternal glory and He has more than enough grace to establish, strengthen, settle and build you up and perfect you in the afflictions, cares and adversarial relationship that we run into in this world. He can do it all because He's the God of all grace. Not just a little grace, not just eternal grace, Not just practical grace, but practical grace and eternal grace. And all grace. Because it says all grace. And in a context like this, since there's no limiting factor in the Bible, we believe that all means all. It's all the grace we need. But it isn't false grace, and it isn't lascivious grace, and it isn't frustrated grace, and it's not vain grace. It's true grace. And we're thankful for it. So, we can see... As we look backward in verses 7, 8, and 9, why we have the but there, and we're thankful for the but, and we appreciate the but. Briefly, look at verse 9, because I finished in a hurry last Lord's Day, and I just want to remind us of the second half of the sentence that is about the devil. The fir- Verse 8, the first half of the sentence, is telling us to be sober and vigilant. That means to be very serious about life and to be very watchful. Because we have an adversary, and he's smarter than we are, and he knows us at least as well as we know ourselves, or maybe better. And he's walking about, he's like a roaring lion, he's seeking to feed himself, he wants to eat something, he wants to devour, and he wants to devour your soul by taking you off of your high standard of love for Christ and living holy and holy living in order to bring you down to disgrace the gospel and bring shame to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have in verse 8. In verse 9, we're told what to do. Whom resist? James would write in James 4, 7, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a wonderful rule. Whom resist? Steadfast in the faith. We cannot change doctrine. We must hold to the doctrine of the apostles. We believe in apostolic tradition. And we believe in the apostles and brethren. In these five verses, we are going to find out how important it was to establish doctrine by the apostles. Because Peter is writing this epistle to confirm those under Paul's ministry that Paul was preaching the truth of the grace of God. 
because they were Jews and they wanted the chief Jewish apostle in their minds to say so. And so he does. If you heard me read that verse, that we ha- that I am testifying that this grace wherein ye stand is the true grace of God. Amen. Very important. When Paul ran into Jewish legalists in Antioch of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem in Acts 15, what did he do? He immediately purposed with the church there that he and Barnabas would go south 300 miles to go to Jerusalem and get it settled with the apostles. Now in that particular case, it was James that settled it, but Peter was one of the chief speakers at that council. This is very important as we wrap this up to understand why Peter wrote this epistle And and brethren, I want us to embrace the fact, I do not want us to get hung up on the history of these books. I want to introduce the history of these books to us, but for us to embrace the fact that we do believe in tradition. And we do exalt the apostles. The apostles are the, the apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ are the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. But we follow the Lord Jesus Christ by what He taught His apostles to teach us Gentiles. We do not follow Jesus Christ directly, but through the interpretation and application of the Scriptures of our beloved brother Paul. Otherwise, we'd all be circumcised for religious reasons, because Jesus was. Otherwise, we'd be offering sacrifices of turtle doves every time you had a baby, like Mary did. And on and on and on we could go. It's a document on our website called Jesus or Paul. Jesus is our Savior, but Paul shows us how to follow Him. And it's very important. We're Pauline Christians. Whom resist steadfast in the faith? Don't you dare move away from the Gospel. There's going to be adversaries coming. Peter reminds these readers. They're in Asia Minor of of the, of the Roman Empire, they're going to come against you. There's going to be Jewish legalists coming. There's going to be pagans trying to unseat the authority of the gospel of Paul. The devil's going to try to come and throw fiery darts to discourage you from the gospel. But don't you let them have a way with you. Resist steadfast. Don't move. Knowing. And this was a little point that I didn't get to make last Lord's Day. Knowing. When the Bible uses the word knowing, get excited. Something has just been stated, and God the Holy Spirit is going to explain to you how you can best take advantage of it. How can you best resist the devil and be steadfast in the faith? By remembering that we have a whole bunch of brethren throughout the world, like they did, that have to do the same thing every day. And there's just comfort in that. The Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10.13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Do you know how helpful that is? Do you know what we all think? That our temptations, our afflictions, Ryan, are you listening to me? Our temptations and our afflictions are so severe, no one else is dealing with the difficulty of my set of circumstances. Wrong. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, Amen. who will with the temp- oh, who will with the temptation. Are you telling me that God brings the temptations? Yes, yes He does. He told us why in chapter one, verses six and seven, for the perfecting and purifying of our faith. Right. Faith doesn't get better with prosperity. Right. Faith gets better with adversity. Right. 
Can you see me clearly, Lydia? I meant that in all affection. We all have afflictions. I could probably go through this congregation and name some of your afflictions. But you know what? They're common. Knowing, knowing that the same afflictions, the same afflictions are accomplished. That is an interesting choice of words. That means God's doing His work with others just like He's doing His work with you. It is totally under the control of God. Are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You Jewish strangers that are far from home, stuck way up there in Asia, modern day Turkey, don't feel alone. Don't feel like God has singled you out for extraordinary suffering, persecution, trials and afflictions because the same afflictions are being accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. While we're in the world, brethren, what did Jesus say? In the world ye shall have tribulation. Um, This is the second time here. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's John 16, verse 33. So that's why we have the word but there. The immediate context includes cares, includes an adversary, includes afflictions, but we have the God of all grace on our side. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, they would have swallowed us up quick. If it wasn't for this but right here, starting 1 Peter 5.10, the adversaries of Christianity would have swallowed it up quickly. The pagans would have swallowed it up. The Jewish legalists would have swallowed it up. The heretics would have swallowed it up. The Roman Catholic developing mystery of iniquity of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 would have swallowed them up. But they survived it and they turned the world upside down. Because the God of all grace was with them. And the God of all grace has called us to a high end for our existences. And He has also provided grace to take us through these trials and afflictions of this life. So we have the word but. I fear as I go further. I fear. Here's the problem. We're about to talk about the God of all grace. It should light us up. But we live in America in 2015. No one has ever lived a more pampered, a more protected, a more prosperous, a more peaceful existence than we have. Never have people had more power and more opportunity to do whatever they want to do, to enjoy the good things of life, to bask in successes, to accomplish big things, to have big houses, lots of cars, lots of toys. Lord, have mercy upon us. When I read in the Bible, I read that Jeshurun, a nickname for Israel, when Jeshurun waxed fat, then he kicked. Rebellion follows prosperity. How did God get His people back to worshiping Him and being thankful for His grace? By adversity. If you've read the book of Judges, isn't it one roller coaster ride of prosperity, prosperity getting them down, and then in adversity, they would repent and the Lord would lift them up again, and it's just a roller coaster ride. Well, where are we in 2015 in America? Would we pray more if it were the Great Depression of 1929 through 1934? 
Would we pray more if we were involved in a war for the survival of our nation? It's, it's just something we've got to think about. When I, when I look at this text and I feel my new man and the Spirit of God speaking to me, getting me so jacked up in my office about the God of all grace who has called us unto eternal glory. It's what I wrote you in the preparatory last evening, yesterday afternoon. I fear that our lives are so good here and there's so many opportunities for our lives here that we don't really want to go to heaven, that we don't really care about heaven, and that we're not really in love with heaven. Do you know how God will will solve that for us if we don't solve it ourselves? He will rip us up in this world. He will bring you bodily pain. He will bring you family trouble. He will bring you financial loss. He will bring you politics that overwhelm your soul. And if we look around, these things are all available to tap into our lives. And I dread it. I want us to be a protected, hedged-in church where God will preserve us because in spite of the prosperity, reaching out to entice us and seduce us, we prefer the grace of God. We prefer the Lord's Day to any other day of the week. We prefer the preaching of His Word and the singing of His songs to any other activity in our lives. If you don't choose that, He will make the choice for you. And the choice may be in heaven because He'll just take you out of this world. Like He did Ananias and Sapphira and like He did the saints at Corinth. Lord help us. I hope you know what I mean when I give that little warning as I get going here. But the God of all grace. But the God of all grace. All the grace you will ever desire. And we desire grace. All the grace you will ever expect, need, or obtain is from the God Jehovah of grace. There is no grace in those pagan gods. Remember what you had to give those pagan deities of Canaan? Your children in a burnt sacrifice. So they passed their seed through the fire to Molech. God passed His Son through the fire if you'll allow me that comparison by metaphor, for the salvation of us and our children. Thank You, Lord, for Your great grace. There is no other source or example of grace that we can compare to the grace of God. God's grace is so complete in quality, so extensive in timing, and so permanent in duration, that it gives us perfect security in this world, through death, and in the next world. What is grace? The God of all grace. But, the God of all grace. What is grace? Humor me by listening to my repeated definition of this word. Demerited favor. God richly gives unconditionally to rebel, wicked, enemies. That is grace. Demerited favor that God richly gives unconditionally to rebel wicked enemies. This is one of the grand themes of our church. The sovereign grace of God in salvation. And we're so thankful for it. We do not use the foolish definition of grace like most pulpits do. And it's not because we love being different. It's because 
If we end up being different by reading the Word of God and understanding it, so be it. Their definition is unmerited favor. That is what God showed to the angels that are kept in their first estate. They were neutral toward God. It's far more than unmerited favor. It's not only that we haven't earned the favor of God that He gives us as His adopted children, we have demerited that favor by in fact earning an eternity in hell. It is demerited favor. And we want to exalt this word grace as high as we can as we work our way through these verses. Grace is more than mercy. Sometimes they're used very close to synonyms in the Bible, but sometimes they are not and the definitions are not equal. Mercy, if it's truly defined means to withhold judgment. But grace is to bestow a positive blessing and reward and favor, not just withholding judgment. To be gracious is to do something kind, wonderful, and loving toward a person. And and, and grace includes the fact of mercy. And grace includes all the facets of salvation by which God has bestowed upon us abundant spiritual blessings that have been chosen to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That is the grace of God. It's a wonderful thing for us to think about it. How much grace did it take for God to design a plan to kill His own Son to satisfy His own justice? God could not be merciful and acquit or clear guilty sinners just by the choice of His will other than the choice of His will, including the wise and prudent design of the plan of salvation for us to have a substitute come and die for us, and that substitute being His Son. Yes, it's according to the counsel of His own will, but the counsel of His own will in Ephesians chapter 1 goes on to describe it as being revealed to us in all wisdom and prudence for the brilliant design that He came up with of sending His Son to suffer in our stead so that He can be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. Romans chapter 3 and verse 26. No being has ever overcome greater inhibitions and restrictions of His nature to show mercy. That is why when the Bible tells us that we are ought to, we ought to forgive others as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, that is a standard that is so high, we'll never reach it, but we ought to strive for it. So we should be gladly willing to forgive others because no being has been so inhibited to clear and acquit guilty, rebel, wicked enemies as God was toward us. This is grace. So how did He do it? I just explained that to you. He devised and designed to send His Son to die for us. Credible. Glory. Hallelujah and Amen. As we sang earlier. You know, we've got two Amens in this passage. Brother Newell, thank you for that selection of 302 in our Trinity hymnals. We've got two Amens. One in verse 11, one in verse 14. And we sang... A few amens in that song. Because let it be so in truth, and it is so in truth. Thank you, Lord. God is inhibited by His nature to punish all offenders without mercy. 
So He made His Son of a woman and sent Him as a substitute for us to die for our sins. No being has ever forgiven greater offenses than our God to forgive us from Eden until now. Follow with me. I've just said no being was more inhibited than God by His holiness and justice at coming up with a plan of salvation. Now I'm saying no being has ever forgiven greater offenses than our God's forgiven us from Eden until now. How in the world can He forgive our first parents? He put them in a place that we tend to call paradise. He put them in a perfect world with perfect spouses. There was no one else around. There was no sin nature. There was no sin. He would come in the cool of the evening and talk with them. They could eat of every tree of the garden freely, including the tree of life. How could He forgive that sin? Because they listened and believed and bought in and chose to follow His arch enemy that had been cast out of His position in heaven, the devil. How can He forgive it? By sending the seed of the woman. Should I call Him the second Adam or the last Adam? Since 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Him the last Adam, and 1 Corinthians 15.47 calls him the second man. Thank you. Yes, we'll call them both. Do some people get hung up on words? Does the Bible give us verses for them? When they get hung up on such words? Lord, help us. But He sent the second Adam. He sent the last Adam. He sent another Adam. The seed of the woman. Jesus Christ who took that devil straight on and undid the damnation of death, the curse of death that was upon us. But brethren, not only do we have Adam's sin, have you added anything to Adam's sin since you were conceived? Just a little? We've added? No being has forgiven more, but the God of all grace. The God of all grace we're worshiping today. Because He's forgiven us so much. In spite of creation, teaching you every day and every night. In spite of providence, keeping you every day of your lives. In spite of the conscience, which is the candle of the Lord. In spite of Scripture, we have followed the enemy of God and walked according to the course of this world, the arch enemy of God. But He's forgiven us all. Praise His glorious name. No being has ever rewarded so graciously and so greatly as God adopting us to be His sons. Rulers on earth, like our president, like a governor, in very rare circumstances, may pardon enemies to let them try again in society on their own. I said enemies. Yes, our president pardons criminals. They're usually buddies of buddies. Let's just leave that one there. That's his choice, and that's God's choice, actually, as to who gets pardoned. But how many pardon their enemies? And when they do pardon their enemies, and it's very rare, they only let them off the hook to go out and stand on a street and, and try to make, a, make their way in life you know, without uh, much of a transferable skill or without much of, a, of contact and approval of the world out there. But God is nothing like that. Our blessed God, the God of all grace, not only pardoned us, He atoned for us, which made us at one again with Him. Remember the word atonement? Don't ever be scared by it. The first five letters are all that count. 
at one again. When God atoned for us, He put us at one again with Himself and then adopted us as His own sons. This is incredible. This adoption carries all the benefits that is, that is involved in the concept of adoption. Eternal inheritance, because God is eternal, of all that He owns, and He owns it all. Now did you hear what I just described grace as? Three levels of grace. No being has ever been more inhibited against Showing rebels such favor. No being has ever forgiven so many offenses. No being has ever rewarded so greatly those that were his enemies. Praise God. It's the God of all grace. Listen, brethren, would it be difficult for us to spend a month on the first few words of 1 Peter 5? (laughs) Thank you, brother. That's the pain of preparing an outline and planning to speak. Because we should just talk and sing about God's grace for a month or so. Then we could go on to, He's called us unto His eternal glory. And we could preach for and sing for a month or so on heaven. And that we've been called to heaven. I hope that by our shorter stay here, and I will invoke Peter, I have written briefly. (laughs) He said it. Why did he write it? Because some of these subjects deserve this much treatment, and he gave them this much. And he knew it. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We love your word. But, we know why the but is there. The God of all grace. And you are indeed that, O Holy Father. No matter what afflictions you face or endure, there is ongoing grace from the throne of God. You can go there for help. Hebrews chapter 4 says he was tempted in all points like as we are. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Therefore, let us go boldly to the throne of grace. the throne of grace to obtain help and grace in time of need. Yes, indeed. He's perpetually at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. But it says He called us. We understand this word calling not to be a phone call. We understand... Don't jest. You'd be surprised what people do with the word called when they get into a Bible. They think that God is asking. Remember, they think that Jesus is standing with His hair down to the middle of His back at your heart's door, knocking away, hoping that you might let Him in, that He might save you. They think that's calling. I want to be your Savior. If you'll just follow that twisted little Romans road that some give, you'll be able to find out about me. And you can invite me into your heart and be saved. Revelation 3.20 There is no salvation in Revelation 3.20. It is written to the church of Laodicea, who in their arrogance, pride, prosperity, luxury, and blessing like we have, had foregone a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus is appealing to a church... And he accuses them of being lukewarm and he's going to spew them out of his mouth. But he says, if you would like to have a relationship with me, I stand at the door and knock. All you have to do is open the door and I will come in and sup with you. It's referring to fellowship with God, fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, not salvation. And so when it says he called us, when a man has a calling, that doesn't mean that he heard a voice. You should be a bricklayer. 
He has ability given by God. And that is His calling. When the Bible says that Jesus was called and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, what does that mean? That there was a cloud formation that said, Jesus of Nazareth, you should become like Melchizedek. Or is that all by the ordination and appointment and decree of Almighty God? The best passage to quickly get past this point, and for those theological students sitting here, if you start reading systematic theologies, you are going to find out about the general call and the effectual call. And what that means is, we believe that this is what they mean, that they believe in gospel regeneration. That the gospel goes, should be preached very widely. And that the gospel will be effectual or effective or accomplish a purpose in some in regenerating them. That's why I'm taking a little bit of time here. When the Bible says that Paul was called to be an apostle, was he asked? I'm waiting for somebody to raise their hand and say, but what about the road to Damascus? That's correct. And and I want to back up. We're going to have read to us in the second assembly, Galatians chapter 1, that says, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb. Is that the road to Damascus? Was, was Saul of Tarsus' mommy on the road to Damascus? But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, when did that happen? To reveal His Son in me on the road to Damascus. But notice what had already occurred long before that separated unto the gospel of God from his mother's womb. From his mother's womb, God had already purposed that Saul of Tarsus was going to be his apostle, and he had already been called by God's grace to be an apostle. It was on the road to Damascus that he was shown who he was going to preach with that call for the rest of his life. Very important. Call. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's look at the word call and see that it is... A work of God, not a work of man. It's not a call. It's not an invitation. It's not an offer. It's not a request. We don't respond to it. God changes us. God appoints us. God chooses us. God elects us. God ordains us. And that's the call of the Bible. When the Bible says that Paul was called to be an apostle, the Bible also says Paul was appointed to be an apostle. It also says that Paul was ordained to be an apostle. Therefore, we understand that two synonyms of the word call are appoint and ordain. And that means that some higher power is operating upon us. I hope that that is simple. But for those of you that want to be establishing a theological foundation for your beliefs to be able to defend what we believe in this church, you will listen carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. There are some in verse 22 that require a sign. That was the Jews, so they didn't like the gospel because it didn't have enough miracles for them. And the Greeks sought after Greek wisdom or philosophy, and so they didn't like the gospel. But that doesn't change what we preach. We just go ahead and preach what they don't like in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. That's how they perceived it, and that's how they responded to it. Verse 24, but unto them which are called. Notice, 
This is an operation of grace that takes place on them before they hear the gospel that changes the way in which they respond to the gospel. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What causes a person, when they hear the gospel, to think that that good news about Jesus Christ is the power and the wisdom of God? What causes that to happen? They were called. They were appointed. They were ordained to that end. Acts chapter 13 and verse 48 puts it this way, in describing the difference in Paul's big sermon in Antioch of Pisidia. Acts 13. It says, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And that's a good cross-reference for being called. Because we've already proven that called means to be ordained or appointed to it. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 would say that we've been appointed to obtain eternal life by Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've got all the words involved. We just want to understand that that call, like a man's calling, are gifts he's given before he was born. By the God of heaven. Some of you are gifted to be artists. Don't be an artist. Unless you can turn the big bucks. Because you know what the name is of the association of artists in every town, don't you? Starving artists. Because they didn't want to get a transferable skill. They wanted to play with pencils and paint. I didn't mean that offensively. I just meant, turn the big bucks and you can be called to be an artist. Because we go to work for money. And if you're not providing money to support your family, then we failed somewhere. Forgive me for getting way off on callings. You know, those abilities that a man has that make up his calling are gifts from God. And so it is to believe the gospel. But unto them which are called... It doesn't say the gospel calls them. It says that they are called. And they respond in a different way to the gospel. Verse 25, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren. Notice the word call. Ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God's... Don't don't say that word yet. God has called the lesser men of this world to confound those that are greater. So he uses the word calling twice in verse 26. And you're supposed to look around and see that God has not called wise men after the flesh. And he hasn't called mighty men and he hasn't called noble men. But God hath chosen. Oh, but God hath chosen. Oh, that's what calling is. God's appointment, God's ordination, God's choosing us to His salvation. And it's because of that, it's consequent to that, that we hear the gospel, believe it, and perceive it to be the power and wisdom of God. It's chosen. We didn't choose. God chose. We didn't respond to an offer. God chose. We didn't respond to an invitation. God chose. When it comes to hearing the gospel and believing it and loving it, God has to make that difference. Let's get back to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, who hath called us. God has appointed us. God has ordained us. God has chosen us unto His eternal glory. And when it says eternal glory, that is not just an invitation. You know, there are so many. If we went down the street right now, if we, if we packed up 
and went to wherever you want to go, downtown Greenville, and just walked down the street and buttonholed people, would you like to go to heaven when you die? What are they all going to say? Except for a few that want to give us problems. Yes, they want to go to heaven. Where is that ever taught in the Bible? Can you show me in the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, where the apostles ever went and preached, how many here would like to go to heaven? When Paul stood on Mars Hill with the philosophers of Greece in Athens, the wisest men on earth, did he say, guys, you've got great IQs and you've got a lot of education, but if you want to go to heaven, you need to come forward. He didn't say anything like that whatsoever. He said, your own prophets condemn your stupid, superstitious religion. And I'm here to tell you about a man named Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead to prove that he is going to be the judge of this nation. And you. You can go read it in Acts chapter 17. The evangelism of the Bible is so different from modern evangelism. Thanks to Charles Finney and D.L. Moody and Jack Hiles. And Billy Graham. It is so different from Bible evangelism. God does the saving. We do the educating. That's where the gospel fits in. God chose us before the world began. We preach the gospel. We never modify it. If we ever modified it, then we would have Jews and Greeks coming into the church and the church would grow. Whenever you look at a church that's really growing fast, they have modified the gospel and they have... As it were, Jews and Greeks flooding in that aren't there for Christ crucified. They're there for man's wisdom or for the miracles. So we just keep preaching Christ crucified. Because I'll tell you, when God has elected someone to salvation and Christ has died for them and the Holy Spirit has regenerated them, they will love the plain, basic preaching of the gospel. And we don't have to modify it. And we we can't modify it. Or then we alter the effect on men. Right. We want our gospel, like 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17, to be a savour to God in everyone that hears it. Those that reject it, it's a savour of death unto death. Those that believe it, it is a savour of life unto life. That means an aroma, a scent, that goes up into heaven and blesses God on both counts. Because here is a message given of the Creator of the universe sending His Son to die, and men reject that? It's a savour of death unto death. The Gospel is never a savour of death unto life. It is a savour of death unto death. It proves the death of some. It proves the life of others. But God, of all grace, has called us. Us. Here sitting today, hearing today, and hopefully many of those that are hearing this later by way of modern witty inventions. We've been called unto His eternal glory. We've been appointed to it. We've been ordained to it. We've been chosen to it. God lives in unbelievable glory from eternity to eternity. And He wants you there with Him. That is incredible. But we get wrapped up. And if I work hard, and if I plan wisely, all you young men listen to me. If I follow if I follow the urgency, if I follow the instruction of the church, I'm going to make more money. I'm going to get promoted. I'm going to get a better job. I'm going to have a bigger, better, bigger, better, bigger, better. What we want is heaven. 
That doesn't mean we commit suicide. There's no pink or red Kool-Aid here today to get there. But we want to set our affection on things above. And when we read words like this, unto His eternal glory, the glory of God, when the Lord would let out just a little bit of His glory, what happens to men? They fall on their faces as dead. Just He lets out just a little. What did He tell Moses? Moses said, I want to see your glory. God said, no man can see my glory and survive. I still want to see some. Okay? I'll show you my backside. Exodus chapters 33 and 34. I'll show you my backside. Just a little bit of glory. And you know what the glory was? The grace of God. It was a, it was a loud voice blasting about the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. Amen. Was to see the glory of God. When John on the Isle of Patmos turned around when he heard a loud voice speaking to him and saw the Lord Jesus Christ glorified, what does it say he did? He fell at his feet as dead. When God came down and spoke to Job for a few chapters, what did Job do? I repent in dust and ashes. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. I got a little glimpse of your glory I shouldn't have been arguing for the last 30 chapters. The God of all glory. I mean, we could, we could talk about His glory. When this, was yesterday a decent sunrise? Did, did, did anybody else notice? It was beautiful. And the glory of the sun is just a little tiny token of the glory of God. Right. There's no need for the sun in heaven. Because the Lamb is the glory and the light thereof. And you know where God wants us? With Him in His glory. He's called us unto His eternal glory. Everything is perfect. You read about it in Revelation 21. Everything is perfect. All things are become new. The bondage of corruption. We live in this world. And you know, when you look at it, do you immediately think of corruption? When you look at a rose, it looks beautiful. Listen, I saw a new bluebird yesterday in our backyard. Forget the blue jay. This was a bluebird that had a shade of royal blue that was staggering. On its dad, I needed you so bad. My mother-in-law was asking me what was it, and I couldn't get any closer than a robin. <laughs> It was, so, it was so beautiful. And you know, you look at that and you're just, who in the world painted that thing? Right. God painted that. It was royal blue down its back and a tuft on its head. Somebody probably already knows just from my pitiful description. I just looked at it. It doesn't look like it's corruptible. It doesn't look like it's in bondage. It looks beautiful. But everything we see is under the bondage of corruption. This whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain together until now. And Jesus Christ is coming soon to lift those chains off this universe. And everything is going to be restored to its original splendor. For whom? For you, brethren. For you. God hath called us unto His eternal glory. Because it's the new heaven and the new earth. What a blessing. What a blessing. Paul's visit to the third heaven that we had read to us said he heard things there that were not lawful for him to utter. 
The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. If you love God, that's an evidence that God first loved you. If you love God and He first loved you, then He has called you unto His eternal glory and He's got things stored up for you that you can't imagine. And no man has ever imagined. These things ought to move us. These things ought to keep us stable and settled every day of our lives. Because God has called us unto His eternal glory. Who cares about the little affliction in this world when we have the eternal weight of glory waiting for us? Did you like Paul's comparison in 2 Corinthians 4.17? This light affliction, which is only for a moment, is nothing to be compared to the exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Amen. I like Paul mocking that brilliant comparison by, by mocking it brilliantly by showing it doesn't deserve to be compared. Paul said, I reckon that there is no comparison between the sufferings of this world and the glory which is to be revealed in Romans chapter 8. The coming glory, the coming eternal glory of Jesus Christ's return has been Peter's theme from the beginning. You know, we ran into it very early on in the first chapter, and so we shouldn't be surprised here. But let me, let me make my warning again. You are too comfortable in your homes. Your refrigerators have too much in them. Your cars are too warm and comfortable and fun to drive. Your nation is too preserved. Your liberties are too great. Your clothes are too cheap. I'll tell you something if I was preaching to the Antipato Baptist Church of Christ in Georgetown, South Carolina when it had 1,200 black members and four white members that 1,200 of them would know that what I was telling them was some pretty good news because they were rice plantation slaves. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, when he was in the middle of that storm that almost did him in, and he remembered his mother telling him about the God of all grace and that she had prayed for him every day of his life, he called out on that God of all grace. But see, none of you have been in a storm that was threatening your life this past week. Lord, help us to get the lesson without that. By Christ Jesus, God's grace is always wrapped up in Christ Jesus. God cannot just choose to be gracious. His choice to be gracious includes the choice to design the way in which His justice and His holiness can be satisfied. And Jesus Christ made all that satisfaction for us. After that ye have suffered a while. 1 Peter 5.10 After that ye have suffered a while. It is important for us to grasp, that means to understand, to believe, and to remember that suffering is a good and productive thing. We would never choose it unless we were very wise. It is a necessary and a productive, it's a good and productive thing. You know, you're very close by. Just turn back four or five pages to James chapter 1 to remind yourself of several very powerful words. 
And we're going to have a knowing in this sentence. My brethren, James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. How can we count it? It doesn't say count it a little joy. Count it all joy. That means to get very excited. Are we all together on this? This is hard to read and to believe, but this is the truth of the Bible. Count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. Knowing this. See, by knowing what's about to come, you should be able to count it all joy. Knowing this. The trying of your faith worketh patience. If it wasn't for those divers' temptations of verse 2, you could never learn patience. Verse 4, But let patience have her perfect work. Don't fight. Don't regret. Don't resent. Don't get angry at God for these divers' temptations that come your way. Let patience have her perfect work. Get as much patience as you can out of the lesson. That ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Because when you have learned patience, you don't need anything else in the way of Christian graces. Because it is the highest and it is the last to learn. And what is patience in this passage and others like it? The cheerful enduring of negative events. That is what patience is. And we can't learn that without divers' temptations coming our way. So we get physical afflictions. Our spouses get physical afflictions. We have trouble with our eyes. We lose money. We lose a job. We lose a child. And we lose a government. You know, whatever it takes to get to you, God knows your buttons. And these verses are wonderful. But they're hard to believe and they're hard to practice. But we should believe them as much as we believe any other verse of the Bible. After that ye have suffered a while. Through suffering, God is able to perfect us. Prosperity has never been the means for perfecting the God's saints. Adversity is the means. Remember, every chapter of this epistle, we have found that these people were suffering. As we've worked through it, every chapter mentioned their suffering or their persecution or their being counted evil by their neighbors and those around them. His readers were facing that. After you have suffered a while, you can't have, God isn't going to give you these things. These four, there's four things here. Let's just, I'm going to try to make this as simple as I can. He can make you perfect. And we just read that, didn't we? James 1, 2 through 4. God can make you perfect. He can establish you, strengthen you, and settle you. He doesn't do it before you suffer. He doesn't do it when you start suffering. He does it after you've suffered a while. Because it's in the process of suffering that God provides the strength for these things. We had 2 Corinthians 12 read to us. The Lord sent me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Paul said, I prayed three times that I could get rid of this thing in his life. We have messengers to buffet us from time to time. God brings divers, temptations into our lives. Initially, we're taken back by them. Initially, our legs are sawn off. Initially, we're confused. Initially, we wonder, why is this happening to me? But we come into the house of God like today to humble ourselves before the Word of God and find out that we should count it all joy that God is allowing 
ordaining something in our lives to perfect us until we don't need anything else to make us perfect and complete and mature and full Christians. The whole package. And the topmost joint of that whole package is to cheerfully endure negative events. Is it as hard to be thankful for prosperity? When prosperity comes, is it hard to thank God for it? Does everyone love getting up in this pulpit and thanking God for their prosperity? But who is cheerful in the face of adversity? That's what we want to learn. And that is what's being taught here. After that ye have suffered a while, God will come through the God of all grace, who's called you to eternal glory, and the riches of His glorious grace, and the superabundance of His grace, has more than enough to sustain you and to help you and to bless you in your trials. So that Paul would say, once he understood it, once God, through Jesus Christ, preached this sermon that you're hearing right now, or this portion of it, to Paul, he said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Therefore, I rejoice in my infirmities and afflictions, because when I am weak, then am I strong. I get an infusion of grace that I would not otherwise get, and everyone knows that I have something wrong with me physically, but I am happy, thankful, joyful, cheerful about it in spite of it, and I show the power of God in my life. We had it read to us in 2 Corinthians 4 as well. That we are troubled on every side. We are cast down but not destroyed because God upholds us. And He gives us strength day by day. 1 Peter chapter 5, After that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect. I hope you know that there's much more that could be said about suffering. Suffering is good and it is wisdom to appreciate its value and virtues for your perfection. Do you think that buds... Other than Zach, does anybody know what BUD stands for? The Navy Training Program for SEALs. Do you think you go to SEALs training at BUDS and you get dressed up and they hang pretty medals on you? Or when you go to BUDS, do they make you lift a telephone pole over your head and then run through waist-deep water until enough of the guys have passed out or vomited or quit that they finally let you have some relief? What makes a Navy SEAL? What makes a Christian? A little bit of BUDS training. And what is BUDS training? Divers' temptations. After that, ye have suffered a while. The devil attacking you. Enemies attacking you. Persecution, loss of friends, loss of standing in the earth, loss of reputation because the world hates us like it hated Jesus. Do you know that there are guys that, listen to me very carefully, do you know that there are guys that enlist for buds? You say, I thought that was the only way you could get there. That's right. You raise your hand and say, I want buds training. I want to be a Navy SEAL. I want some animal without a conscience to pound me into oblivion to turn my body into a rock-hard machine that knows no pain and is impervious to difficulties and has greater strength and speed and can do things underwater that no one else can do. Now here we are in the house of God 
Are we willing to raise our hands and say, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. I want to be a soldier of the cross, a follower and a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Lord, I am going to trust that when I ask for Jubilee to fall from her high chair and dash her head right here on a table, that you will give me grace for that moment, that you will perfect me, that you will establish me, that you will strengthen me, and that you will settle me. I believe that you will blow the whistle before I am consumed by my afflictions. I believe that there is grace with you. I believe that you will not give me more than I can bear, but you will with the temptation also give me a way of escape. Do you all believe that? Then you don't have to raise your hands because we're not really into that. But I hope that you're all raising your hands mentally and spiritually Lord, I understand the lesson this morning, and you are the God of all grace. You have called me to eternal glory, and if you want to bring some difficulties into my life employment-wise, if you want to bring some difficulties into my life conceiving children, if you want to bring difficulties into my life by me taking care of aged parents, if you want to bring difficulties into my life by one of my children playing the fool, whatever, I don't care what it is. If my spouse gets very sick, I believe that there's grace with you, sustaining grace and eternal grace. And I am willing to follow you. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect. Your gracious Father will perfect you by suffering as a good result of it, which we've already read. Establish you. Establish is to render something stable or firm. Your gracious Father will establish you through those sufferings. You will be stable if you will trust Him. He's got the grace for it. He will strengthen you. Your gracious Father will strengthen you in those sufferings. My favorite verse is 2 Corinthians 4.16, that He will renew you day by day. He will not give you such an overwhelming supply of grace that you can think, I've got this baby whipped for the rest of my life. He will give you enough grace to get through it for today. Because he says he'll renew you day by day and then settle you. You know, we could talk about each one of these for some time, but to settle you when a tempestuous storm comes into your life and shakes the foundation of your life and things happen that you didn't think were going to happen and God unsettles you and God rips the rug out from underneath you and God makes you uncomfortable and God makes you nervous and God makes you sad and... He'll settle you because He's the God of all grace. And there's enough grace left to settle you. To settle you down from the tempestuous storm of life when there are divers, afflictions, and suffering that upset our equilibrium and tranquility. God is able to give you tranquility in your soul because He graciously restores. Your gracious Father will settle you down to calm serenity if you keep your mind stayed on Him. He is able to give you perfect peace. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. To this God be glory. He's got all the glory. So what does it mean? To Him be glory. We want to give Him glorious praise. We want to speak of His glory. We want to sing of His glory. We want to show His glory. 
We want to share His glory. We want to lift up His glory to Him. This is a blessing to God that He deserves all glory forever because He's the God of all grace toward us. To Him be glory and dominion. That's the sovereignty of God. The word sovereignty is not even in our Bibles, but the word dominion is. And I like the word dominion. It means that God dominates His entire creation. And He's absolutely in charge in dominion. To Him be glory and dominion because He has chosen us and ordained us and called us and appointed us to eternal glory and a supply of practical glory that keeps us up every day of our lives. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.